The prophet would be the last man he wished or expected to see, believing that Jezebel's threat had frightened him away so that he would be troubled by him no more. Perhaps Ahab thought that he had fled to some distant country or was in his grave by this time, but here he stood before him. The king was evidently startled and dismayed by the sight of Elijah. His conscience would smite him for his base wickedness, and the very place of their present meeting would add to his discomfort. He therefore could not look on the Tishbite without terror and fearful foreboding that some dire threat of vengeance was at hand from Jehovah. In his fright and annoyance he cried, Hast thou found me? Am I now tracked down? A guilty heart can never be at peace. Had he not been conscious of how ill he deserved at the hands of God, he would not have greeted his servant as, O mine enemy. It was because his heart condemned him as an enemy of God that he was so disconcerted at being confronted by his ambassador. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? Such a reception is all that the faithful servant of God must expect at the hands of the wicked, especially from unregenerate religious professors. They will regard him as a disturber of the peace, a troubler of those who wish to be comfortable in their sins. They who are engaged in evil doing are annoyed at him who detects them, whether he be a minister of Christ or a policeman. The scriptures are detested because they denounce sin in every form. Romanism hates the Bible because it exposes her hypocrisies. The impenitent look upon those as their friends who speak smooth things to them and help them to deceive themselves. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Amos 5.10 Hence it was that the apostle declared, If I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Galatians 1.10 How few servants of Christ are left. The minister's duty is to be faithful to his master, and if he pleases him, what matter it though he be despised and detested by the whole religious world? Blessed are they whom men shall revile for Christ's sake. At this point we should say to any young man who is seriously contemplating entering the ministry, abandon such a prospect at once if you are not prepared to be treated with contempt and made as the filth of the world the off-scouring of all things. 1 Corinthians 4.13 The public service of Christ is the last place for those who wish to be popular with their fellows. A young minister once complained to an older one, My church is making a regular doormat of me. To which he received the reply, If the Son of God condescended to become the door, surely it is not beneath you to be made a doormat. If you are not prepared for elders and deacons to wipe their feet on you, shun the ministry. And to those already in it we would say, Unless your preaching stirs up strife and brings down persecution and contempt upon you, there is something seriously lacking in it. If your preaching is the enemy of hypocrisy, of carnality, of worldliness, of empty profession, of all that is contrary to vital goodness, then you must be regarded as the enemy of those you oppose. And he answered, I have found thee. Elijah was not a man who wore his heart on his sleeve. It took a good deal more than a frown to deter or an angry word to peeve him. So far from being hurt and turning away to sulk, he replied like a man. He took up Ahab on his own terms and said, Yes, I have found thee. I have found thee as a thief and murderer in another's vineyard. It is a good sign when the self-convicted one denounces God's servant as his enemy, for it shows the preacher has hit the mark 
His message has gone home to the conscience. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32.23 says God, and so Adam, Cain, Achan, Ahab, Gehazi, and Ananias proved. Let none think they shall escape divine retribution. If punishment be not inflicted in this life, it most certainly will be in the next, unless we cease fighting against God and flee to Christ for refuge. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude 14.15 Chapter 31 A Dreadful Message And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. 1 Kings 21.20 We have already considered Ahab's question in the first part of the prophet's reply. We now turn to look at the solemn charge which he preferred against the king, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Here we may observe how essential it is that we note particularly each word of holy writ, for if we read this verse carelessly, we shall fail to distinguish sharply between it and an expression used in the New Testament which, though similar in sound, is vastly different in sense. In Romans 7.14 we find the Apostle declares, But I am carnal, sold under sin. That statement has puzzled quite a few, and some have so misunderstood its force that they have confounded it with the prophet's terrible indictment against Ahab. It may be somewhat of a digression, yet numbers of our readers will probably welcome a few expository comments upon the difference in meaning of these two expressions. It will be noted that Romans 7.14 begins with an affirmation, For we know that the law is spiritual, which among other things means it legislates for the soul as well as the body. Its demands reaching beyond the mere outward act to the motive which prompted it and the spirit in which it is performed. In a word, it requires inward conformity and purity. Now as the apostle measured himself by the high and holy requirements of God's law, he declared, But I am carnal. That was not said by way of self-extenuation to excuse his coming so far short of the divine standard set before us, but in self-condemnation because of his lack of conformity thereto. That is the sorrowful confession of every honest Christian. I am carnal expresses what the believer is in himself by nature. Though born from above, yet the flesh in him has not been improved to the slightest degree. Nor is that true of the believer only when he has suffered some fall. He is always carnal, for there is no getting rid of the old nature, though he is not always conscious of this humiliating fact. The more the Christian grows in grace, the more does he realize his carnality, that the flesh pollutes his holiest exercises and best performances. Sold under sin. This does not mean that the saint gives up himself to be the willing slave of sin, but that he finds himself in the case or experience of a slave, of one whose master requires him to do things against his own inclinations. The literal rendering of the Greek is, having been sold under sin, that is, at the fall, in which condition we continue to the end of our earthly course, sold so as to be under the power of sin, for the old nature is never made holy. The apostle speaks of what he finds himself, 
what he is before God, and not of what he appeared in the sight of man. His old man was thoroughly opposed to God's law. There was an evil principle in him against which he struggled, from which he longed to be delivered, but which continued to exert its fearful potency. Notwithstanding the grace he had received, he found himself far, far from being perfect, and in all respects unable to attain thereunto, though longing after it. It was while measuring himself by the law, which requires perfect love, that he realized how far short he came of it. Soul under sin. Indwelling corruption holds the believer back. The more spiritual progress he is enabled to make, the more he discovers his handicap. It is like a man journeying uphill with a heavy load on his back. The farther he proceeds, the more conscious does he become of that burden. But how is this to be harmonized with sin shall not have dominion over you? Romans 6.14 Thus, though indwelling sin tyrannizes the believer, it by no means prevails over him totally and completely. Sin reigns over the sinner, having an absolute and undisputed dominion over him, but not so with the saint. Yet it so far plagues as to prevent his attaining unto perfection, which is what he craves. See Philippians 3.12 From the standpoint of the new nature, and as God sees him in Christ, the believer is spiritual. But from the standpoint of the old nature, and as God sees him in himself, he is carnal. As a child of Adam, he is sold under sin. As a child of God, he delights in the law of God after the inward man. Romans 7.22 the acts of a slave are indeed his own acts, yet not being performed with the full consent of his will and delight of his heart, they are not a fair test of his disposition and desires. Vastly different was the case of Ahab from that which we have briefly sketched above. So far from being brought into captivity against his will, he had sold himself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Deliberately and without limit, Ahab wholly gave himself up unto all manner of wickedness in open defiance of the Almighty. As Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness, 2 Peter 2.15, and therefore freely hired himself unto Balak to curse the people of God, as Judas coveted the silver of the chief priests, sought them out and covenanted to betray the Savior unto them, Matthew 26.14 and 15, so this apostate king sold himself to work evil without compunction or reserve. His horrible crime in respect of Naboth was no detached act contrary to the general tenor or course of his life, as David's sin in the matter of Uriah had been, but was simply a specimen of his continual rebellion against God. Having sold himself to work evil in the sight of the Lord, as if in contempt and defiance of him, he was openly, constantly, and diligently employed in it as a slave in his master's business. Thomas Scott Thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. His downward course commenced when he married Jezebel, verse 25, a heathen, an idolater, and the consequences of that horrible union are recorded for our learning. They stand out as a red light, a danger signal, a solemn warning to the people of God today. The law expressly forbade an Israelite to marry a Gentile. And the New Testament just as definitely prohibits a Christian from marrying a worldling. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Second Corinthians 
It is at his or her peril that any Christian willfully treads underfoot this divine commandment, for deliberate disobedience is certain to incur the marked displeasure of God. For a child of his to enter the seat of wedlock with an unbeliever is to make Christ have concord with Belial. 2 Corinthians 6.15 When a Christian man marries a worldling, a son of God becomes united to a daughter of Satan. What a horrible combination! In no uncertain tones did Elijah denounce Ahab for his defiant union with Jezebel and all the evils it had brought in its train. Thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. That is the prime business of God's servant, to make known the indignation and judgment of heaven against sin. God is the enemy of sin. He is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7.11 His wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 1.18 That wrath is the antagonism of holiness to evil, of consuming fire to that which is incapable of sustaining it. It is the business of God's servant to declare and make known the awful case and course of the sinner, that those who are not for Christ are against him, that he who is not walking with God is fighting against him, that he who is not yielding himself to his service is serving the devil. Said the Lord Jesus, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. John 8.34 Complying with the orders of his master, the slave of his lust, yet the willing slave, delighting therein. It is not a service which has been forced upon him against his desires, but one into which he has voluntarily sold himself and in which he voluntarily remains, and therefore it is a criminal servitude for which he must be judged. This then was the ordeal which confronted Elijah, and in essence it confronts every servant of Christ today. He was the bearer of an unwelcome message, he was required to confront the ungodly king and tell him to his face precisely what he was in the sight of a sin-hating God. It is a task which calls for firmness of mind and boldness of heart. It is a task which demands that the glory of God shall override all sentimental considerations. It is a task which claims the support and cooperation of all God's people. Let them do and say nothing to discourage the minister in the faithful discharge of his office. Let them be far from saying, Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. Isaiah 30.10 Rather let the people of God pray earnestly that the spirit of Elijah may rest upon their ministers, that they may be enabled to open their mouths with all boldness. Acts 4.29 That they may keep back nothing which is profitable, that they may shun not to declare all the counsel of God. Acts 20 verse 20 and 27. Let them see to it that there be no failure to hold up their hands in the day of battle. Exodus 17:12. Ah, my reader, it makes a tremendous difference when the minister knows he has the support of a praying people. How far is the pew responsible for the state of the pulpit today? Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, verse 21. It is the business of God's servant not only to paint in its true colors the course which the sinner has chosen to follow, but to make known the inevitable consequence of such a course. First and negatively, they who have sold themselves to work evil in the sight of the Lord have sold themselves for naught. Isaiah 52, 3 Satan has assured them that by engaging in his service they shall be greatly the gainers, that by giving free rein to their lust 
they shall be merry and enjoy life. But he is a liar, as Eve discovered at the beginning. Of those who sell themselves to work evil, it may be inquired, Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Isaiah 55.2 There is no contentment of mind, no peace of conscience, no real joy of heart to be obtained by indulging the flesh, but rather the wrecking of health and the storing up of misery. Oh, what a wretched bargain is this, to sell ourselves for naught, to squander our substance in riotous living and then come to woeful want, to render full obedience to the dictates of sin and receive only kicks and cuffs in return. What madness to serve such a master! But the servant of God has still more painful duty to perform, and that is to announce the positive side of the consequences of selling ourselves to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Sin pays terrible wages, my reader. It is doing so at this present moment in the world's history. The horrors of war, with all the untold suffering and anguish they entail, is the wages of sin now being paid out to the nations, and those nations which have sinned against the greatest light and privileges are the ones receiving the heaviest installments. And is it not meet it should be so? Yes, a just recompense of reward, Hebrews 2.2, is what the word of truth designates it. And identically, the same principle pertains to the individual. Unto everyone who sells himself to work evil in the sight of the Lord, his rejoinder is, Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, dire judgment which shall overwhelm and utterly consume. This too is the duty of God's servant, solemnly to declare unto every rebel against God, irrespective of his rank, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. Ezekiel 33.8 And that same verse goes on to tell us that God will yet say unto the watchman that failed in his duty, His blood will I require at thine hand. O oh, to be able to say with Paul, I am pure from the blood of all men. Acts 20.26 and will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. For the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger, and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city the dogs shall eat, and him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Verses 22-24 the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. For many years Ahab defied Jehovah, but now the day of reckoning was nigh at hand, and when it dawned, divine judgment would fall not only upon the apostate king and his vile consort, but upon their family as well, for that his evil house should be utterly exterminated. Is it not written, The name of the wicked shall rot? Proverbs 10.7 we are here supplied with an awe-inspiring illustration of that solemn principle in the governmental dealings of God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Exodus 20, verse 5. Behold here the justice of God in making Ahab reap as he had sown. Not only had he consented unto the death of Naboth, 21, verse 8, but the sons of Naboth also had been slain, 2 Kings 9, 26. Hence divine retribution was visited not only upon Ahab and Jezebel, but on their children too. And will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. In declaring that he would make the house of Ahab like unto that of two other wicked kings who preceded him, 
God announced the total destruction of his descendants, and that by a violent end. For the house of Jeroboam, whose dynasty lasted barely twenty-four years, we read, He smote all the house of Jeroboam. He left not to Jeroboam any that breathed until he had destroyed him. 1 Kings 15, verse 29. While of Basha, whose dynasty lasted only just over a quarter of a century, we are told, He left him not one male, neither of his kinfolks nor of his friends. 1 Kings 16, verse 11. Probably one reason why the fearful doom which overtook the families of his predecessors are here specifically mentioned was to emphasize still further the enormity of Ahab's conduct, that he had failed to take to heart those recent judgments of God. It greatly aggravates our sins when we refuse to heed the solemn warnings which history records of the unmistakable judgments of God upon other evildoers, as the guilt of our generation is so much the greater through disregarding the clarion call made by the war of 1914 through 18 for the nations to turn from their wickedness and return to the God of their fathers. And what was the effect produced upon Ahab by this message from Jehovah? Disconcerted and displeased, he was on first beholding the prophet, yet when he heard the awful sentence, he was deeply affected. He rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted, and lay in sackcloth and went softly. Verse 27. He made no effort to silence Elijah by self-vindication. His conscience smote him for approving the murderous act, for seizing the booty, though not killing the owner thereof. He knew well that connivance at wickedness by those in authority who ought to restrain it is justly visited upon themselves as their own deed, that the receiver of stolen goods is as bad as the thief. He was abashed and abased. God can make the stoutest sinner to tremble and the most arrogant humble himself. But all is not gold that glitters. There may be a great outward show of repentance without the heart being changed. Many have been made afraid of God's wrath who would not part with their sins. It is to be carefully noted there is no hint that Ahab put away Jezebel or restored the worship of the Lord. That which is recorded here of Ahab is both solemn and instructive. Solemn because it sounds a warning against being deceived by appearances. Ahab made no effort to justify his crimes, nor did he lay violent hands on Elijah. Nay more, he humbled himself, and by his outward acts acknowledged the justice of the divine sentence. What more could we ask? Ah, that is the all-important point. External amendment of our ways, though good in itself, is not sufficient. Rend your heart and not your garments, Joel 2.13, is what a holy God requires. A hypocrite may go far in the outward performance of holy duties. The most hardened sinners are capable of reforming for a season, Mark 6.20 and John 5.35. How many wicked persons have, in times of danger and desperate illness, abased themselves before God, but returned to their evil ways as soon as restored to help? Ahab's humiliation was but superficial and transient, being occasioned by fear of judgment and not a heart hatred of his sins. Nothing is said of his restoring the vineyard to Naboth's heir or next of kin. And where writings of wrongs is absent, we must always seriously suspect the repentance. Later we find him saying of a servant of God, I hate him, chapter 22, verse 8, which is clear proof that he had undergone no change of heart. Instructive also is the case of Ahab, for it throws light on God's governmental dealings with individuals in this life. Though the king's repentance was but superficial, 
Yet inasmuch as it was a public or visible humbling of himself before God, he was so far owned and honored, and an abatement of his sentence was obtained. Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days. Verse 29. He was spared the anguish of witnessing the slaughter of his children and the complete extermination of his house. But there was no repeal of the divine sentence upon himself, nor was the king able to avoid God's stroke, though he made attempt to do so. Chapter 22, verse 30. The Lord had said, In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood. 21, verse 19. And we are told, So the king died, and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and they washed his armor according unto the word of the Lord. Verses 37 and 38. He who sells himself to sin must receive the wages of sin. For the doom which overtook Ahab's family, see Second Kings chapter 9, verse 25, chapter 10, verses 6, 7, 13, 14, and 17. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Chapter 21, verse 23. No vain threats were those which the prophet uttered, but announcements of divine judgment, which were fulfilled not long after. Jezebel outlived her husband for some years, but her end was just as Elijah had foretold. True to her depraved character, we find that on the very day of her death, she painted her face and tired her head and looked out at a window to attract attention. 2 Kings 9.30 It is solemn to observe that God takes note of such things, not with approbation but abhorrence. And it is equally solemn to learn from this passage that those women who paint their faces and go to so much trouble in artificially dressing their hair and seeking to make themselves conspicuous belong to the same class as this evil queen or cursed creature. Verse 34 She was thrown out of the window by some of her own attendants, her blood sprinkling the wall, and her corpse being ruthlessly trampled underfoot. A short time after, when orders were given for her burial, so thoroughly had the dogs done their work that naught remained but the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. 2 Kings 9.35 God is as faithful and true in making good his threatenings as he is in fulfilling his promises. Chapter 32, Elijah's Last Task After the death of Ahab, the judgments of God began to fall heavily upon his family. Of his immediate successor we are told, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria the seventeenth year of the reign of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned two years over Israel. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him, and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel, according to all that his father had done. 1 Kings 22, verses 51 through 53. Unspeakably solemn is that. The three and a half years' famine, the exposure of Baal's impotence, the slaying of his prophets there on Carmel, and the awe-inspiring dealings of God with his father were all known to Ahaziah, but they produced no salutary effect upon him, for he refused to take them to heart. Heedless of those dire warnings, he went on recklessly in sin, continuing to serve Baal and worship him. His heart was fully set in him to do evil, and therefore was he cut off in his youth. 
Nevertheless, even in his case, mercy was mingled with justice, for space for repentance was granted him ere he was removed from this scene. Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, 2 Kings 1.1. In fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy, Numbers 24.17, David had conquered the Moabites so that they became his servants, 2 Samuel 8.2. And they continued in subjection to the kingdom of Israel until the time of its division, when their vassalage and tribute was transferred to the kings of Israel, as those of Edom remained to the kings of Judah. The tribute which the Moabites rendered unto the king of Israel being a hundred thousand lambs and a hundred thousand rams with their wool. 2 Kings 3.4 But after the death of Ahab they revolted. Therein we behold the divine providence crossing Ahaziah in his affairs. This rebellion on the part of Moab should be regarded in the light of when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16.7 But when our ways displease him, evil from every quarter menaces us. Temporal as well as spiritual prosperity depends entirely on God's blessing. When any behave ill to us, it should make us at once examine our conduct toward God. To make his hand more plainly apparent, he frequently punishes the wicked after the similitude of their sins. He did so to Ahab's son. As he had turned from the Lord, Moab was moved to rebel against him. What has just been pointed out concerns the governmental dealings of God and illustrates an important principle in his ways with a nation, by which we mean it treats of that which relates to time and not to eternity, to the workings of divine providence and not to the sphere of salvation. Nations as such have only a temporal existence though the individuals which comprise them have an eternal destiny. The prosperity or adversity of a nation is determined by its attitude and conduct toward God, directly so by those who have his living oracles in their hands, indirectly so with the heathen, in their case being determined by their conduct toward his people. The Old Testament supplies us with so many examples of this that he who runs may read. The attitude of a nation towards God is to be gauged not so much by the general deportment of its people as by the character of its governors or government. The two are, of course, intimately related, for where a majority of the subjects are pious, they will not tolerate wickedness in high places. And on the other hand, when those who lead and rule set an evil example, it cannot be expected that those who follow will excel them in righteousness. Whatever be the particular form of government in a country, and whichever party be in power, it is the character and enactments of its executives that are the deciding factor, for they are the ones holding the positions of chief responsibility in the sight of God. In avowedly Christian countries like Great Britain and the USA, it is the churches which regulate the pulse of the nation. They act as the salt upon the corporate body, and when their ways please the Lord, he gives them favor in the eyes of those round about them. When the Holy Spirit is unhindered, his power is manifested, not only in calling out the elect, but in subduing sin in the non-elect and by causing the machine of state to support godliness, as was more or less noticeably the case a hundred years ago. But when error comes into the churches and discipline is relaxed, the Spirit is grieved and his power is withheld and the evil effects of this become more and more apparent in the country by a rising tide of lawlessness. 
If the churches persist in a downward course, then the spirit is quenched and Ichabod is written over them, as is the case today. Then it is that the restraining hand of God is removed and an orgy of licentiousness comes in. Then it is the government becomes an empty title, for those in power have no power except what the people have delegated to them, and therefore they act in accord with the depraved desires of the masses. This then is ever the order, turning from the true God, turning to false gods, and then the disturbance of the peace, either social revolution or international war. Ahaziah served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God is a jealous God, jealous of his truth, jealous of his honor, and when those calling themselves his people turn unto other gods, his wrath is kindled against them. How many false gods have been worshipped in Christendom during the last few decades? What a travesty of the divine character has been set forth by the major portion of Protestantism, a God whom no one fears. What a mangling of the gospel has there been in the orthodox sections of Christendom, whereby another Jesus, 2 Corinthians 11.4, has displaced the Christ of Holy Writ. Little wonder that, in the inevitable reaction, the multitudes have made gods of mammon and pleasure, and that the nation puts its trust in its armed forces instead of the arm of the Lord. Here and there was an Elijah who raised his voice in testimony to the living God, and in denouncing modern forms of Baal worship, but who gave ear to them? Certainly not the churches, for they closed their pulpits against them so that, like the Tishbite of old, they were forced into isolation and virtual retirement. And now it seems their last task, before God calls them hence, is to pronounce sentence of death upon the whole apostate system. And provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel, then Moab rebelled against Israel. Though those two statements are separated by the ending of the first book of Kings and the beginning of the second, yet the connection between them is too obvious to be missed. It is the connection of cause and effect, the latter making manifest the former. For many years Moab had been tributary to Israel, but now it threw off the yoke. And have we not lived to witness a similar thing with the British Empire? One country after another has severed ties with Britain and become independent. The Bible is no defunct book recording historical events of the remote past, but a living book enunciating vital principles applicable to every age and describing things as they are today. History repeats itself, not only because human nature is fundamentally the same in all ages, but also because the ways of God, the principles of his government, remain unchanged. As the Lord God was provoked by Ahaziah, so he has been provoked by the churches, the politicians, and the people of Great Britain, and his anger was evidenced by his moving Moab to seek her independence. So his displeasure is now seen in his causing one dependency after another to break away from the mother country. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. Verse 2. First, we would note that this verse opens with the word and, which appears to intimate the king's response, or rather lack of response, to what is recorded in the previous verse. What is not found here is solemn and informative, revealing as it does the character of Ahaziah. There was no turning to the Lord for guidance and help. There was no humbling of himself before God and inquiring why this disturbance had entered his realm. Nothing happens by chance. 
and the curse causeless does not come. Proverbs 26.2 Therefore the king's duty was to fast and pray and ascertain what it was that had displeased the Lord. No, we take that back. It would have been downright mockery for him to have done any such thing. There was no need to inquire of the Lord. The king knew quite well what was wrong. He was serving and worshipping Baal, and until his idols were abolished, it would be nothing but play-acting, a pious farce, for him to call upon the name of the Lord. Does the reader agree? Does he? Does she? If not, carefully reread this paragraph. If you concur, is not the application of our own national situation clearly apparent? Unspeakably solemn, yes. Indescribably awful, yes. But if we face facts, things as they really are, the conclusion is unescapable. Let us call attention to another factor which is absent from verse 2. Ahaziah not only fails spiritually, but naturally too. What ought to have been his reaction to this revolt of Moab? Why to have dealt with it with a firm hand and nipped it in the bud? That was obviously his duty as king. Instead, he followed the line of least resistance and devoted himself to pleasure. Instead of taking his place at the head of his army and putting down this rebellion by force, he seems to have luxuriated in the palace. Must we not say in such circumstances that God had given him up to a spirit of madness? He shrank in cowardly fear from the camp and the dangers of the field, and leaving Moab to do as she pleased without attempting her resubjugation, led a life of self-indulgence. Perhaps he recalled the fate which had so recently overtaken his father on the battlefield and decided that discretion is the better part of valor. But there is no escaping the hand of God when he is determined to smite. We are just as liable to meet with an accident in the shelter of our home as if we were exposed to the deadliest weapons on the battlefield. And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. Here was where mercy was mingled with justice. Here was where space for repentance was granted the idolatrous king. Oh, how long-suffering is God! Ahaziah's fall did not prove immediately fatal, though it placed him on a bed of sickness, where he had opportunity to consider his ways. And how often the Lord deals thus, both with nations and with individuals. The Roman Empire was not built in a day, nor was it destroyed in a day. Many a blatant rebel against heaven has been pulled up suddenly in his evil career. An accident overtook him, and though it may have deprived him of a limb, yet not of his life. Such may have been the experience of someone who reads these lines. If so, we would say to him with all earnestness, Redeem the time that is now left you. You might now be in hell, but God has given you a further season, brief at the most, to think of eternity and prepare for it. Oh, that his goodness may lead you to repentance. Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Throw down the weapons of your warfare against him and be reconciled to him. For how shall you escape the everlasting burnings if you neglect his so great salvation? And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. Verse 2 First God had crossed him in his affairs, and then he smote him in his body. We have called attention to what this evil king did not do. Now we turn to consider the course which he actually followed. Neither of those judgments softened him. And having lived without God in prosperity, 
So in adversity he despised his chastening hand. Saul in his extremity had inquired of a witch, only to hear of his immediate doom. So Ahaziah now had recourse to the demon gods of the heathen. He was evidently uneasy at the present state of his health, so sent some of his servants to ascertain of an idolatrous oracle whether or no he should recover from this affliction. Proof that his soul was in a worse state than his body. The Balaam was a general epithet for the false gods, each having his own peculiar office and district. Hence the distinguishing titles of Baal-zebub, Baal-peor, Baal-sephon, Baal-berith. Baal-zebub was the idol of Ekron, a city of Philistia, a country noted for soothsayers, Isaiah 2.6. This Baal-zebub signifies the lord of fly or flies, probably because since their country was infested with flies, as modern travelers still report, they supposed he protected them from the diseases which they spread. In Matthew 12, verse 24, we find our Lord terming Beelzebub, the Greek form of the spelling, the prince of the demons, which intimates that under various names and images, evil spirits were actually worshipped as gods by the heathen, as is plainly stated in 1 Corinthians 10:20. the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. It would appear that at the time of Ahaziah, the priests of Baal had, through their incantations of evil spirits, acquired celebrity for their knowledge of future events, much as the oracle of Delphi was held in high repute in Greece some years later. Believing that the idol at Ekron could foresee and foretell things to come, Ahaziah paid him homage. The exceeding sinfulness of such practices is placed beyond dispute by such passages as Leviticus 20, verse 6 and 27, Deuteronomy 18, verse 10, and 1 Chronicles 10, verse 13. Thus those who consult fortune-tellers, astrologers, and spiritualists are guilty of a fearful sin and expose themselves unto the powers of evil. When a king of Israel sent to inquire of a heathen oracle, he proclaimed to the Gentiles his want of confidence in Jehovah, as if the only nation favored with the knowledge of the true God had been the only nation in which no God was known. This was particularly dishonorable and provoking to Jehovah. Thomas Scott The action of Ahaziah was indeed a deliberate and public rejection of the Lord, a defiant choice of those ways which had called down the wrath of heaven upon his father. It could not pass unnoticed, and accordingly he who is king of kings, as well as the God of Israel, specifically calls him to account. Elijah was sent to meet the king's messengers as they went speeding on their way from Samaria with the announcement of certain death. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel? that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Verse 3. Nothing escapes the observation of him with whom we have to do. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.